0: By becoming a monthly patron you'll also receive our weekly newsletter
1: welcome to the quillette podcast i'm jonathan k here at quillette we talk a lot about cancel culture typically involving progressive mobs shutting down writers artists and academics but it's important to remember that cancel culture afflicts the conservative side of the political spectrum too and sometimes in recent years the mob that comes after its target has been led by one particular person, outgoing President Donald J. Trump. One of Trump's mobbing victims was Sherry Jacobus, a veteran conservative strategist whose career in Washington dates back to the Cold War. Until just a few years ago, she was a regular on Fox News, CNN, and other major networks, where she would often pitch conservative causes. But then in 2015, shortly after she was offered a role on Trump's campaign team, ironically, things took a bad turn for Jacobus. In New York meetings, Jacobus developed a bad impression of Corey Lewandowski, Trump's campaign manager, and got the sense that Trump's fundraisers were playing fast and loose with campaign finance rules governing political action committees, as a Washington Post investigation subsequently confirmed. Jacobus declined the Trump team's recruiting efforts, and she was definitively put off Trump when he attacked fellow Republican and war hero John McCain on the basis that McCain had been captured by the North Vietnamese after his plane got shot down over Hanoi in 1967. That's when Jacobus broke with Trump publicly, and it was around this time that her career fell apart, a process set in motion by just a few lines tweeted from the presidential Twitter account. Once Trump tweeted his abuse at Jacobus, all her work with conservative clients dried up, including conservative clients who Jacobus knew, shared her opinions of Trump. Plus, her email was hacked, she was targeted in a bizarre catfishing scheme, and she began even to fear for her physical safety. Even among her friends, Jacobus noticed, few dared break ranks with the mob, lest they be attacked on Twitter by what was then in effect a sort of career-ending social media presidential death ray. In this week's edition of the podcast, you're going to hear excerpts from my Monday conversation with Jacobus, in which we talk about her eyewitness perspective on the meltdown of GOP political culture. But we're also going to focus on Twitter's role in the way that Trump destroyed his enemies, including relatively minor players, such as Jacobus herself, who lacked any kind of ability to fight back. Over the last week, we've talked a lot about Twitter's decision to ban Trump on the basis that his inflammatory pronouncements have goaded mobs into violence. In this episode, we look at a second and very different kind of damage that Trump did with his social media power. He deliberately and dishonestly ruined the lives of people for doing nothing but reporting inconvenient facts that displeased him. And if that isn't cancel culture, then what is? You began your involvement in Republican politics, from what I can tell is in the 1990s,
2: Uh, Actually, the 1980s. I came to Washington, D.C. In January of 1984, Reagan was president, and I had uh, been working a little bit in television my hometown before that. And so I came to Washington, and I I knocked on doors, Republican doors, until somebody paid me $12,000 a year to answer phones. I was a moderate Republican. My father said, uh, we are Bob Michael, Howard Baker Republicans. We're from Illinois. Um, Bob Michael was the House Republican leader, very much a moderate. Uh, my folks kind of knew him, and and it was in, it was along those lines. It was well before some of the you know right wing nut stuff took over.
1: Right wing nut stuff. It's a relative term because I remember. I guess this is the late two thousands. We had the Tea Party, and I remember at that time. People said, this is a new and very different and more militant strain of conservative activism. Where did you stand at the time? Because I know you've been through several iterations. At one point, you worked in a national capacity with the Republicans.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question that I've been some kind of a partisan. I worked for the party. I was a moderate. I could work for some conservatives, depend. I mean, there were some things I just couldn't do. I kind of liked the, the libertarian bent, not the libertarians the way they are now, you know, Rand Paul and that sort of thing. But I was all about a little bit of freedom, kind of keep the government off your back. My conservative bent was more being a fiscal conservative, getting rid of waste and fraud so that you could fund your priorities and, uh, you know, keeping a balanced budget where possible. And in a defense hawk. I worked in the leadership, you know, after contract with America, I had a senior level job uh, with one of the committees as communications director. So I was in Speaker Newt Gingrich's office, oh, several times a week. And I was very uncomfortable at that time with how much influence the evangelical right wing had. And it seemed that those of us, they always would call me a rhino. The Republicans started calling me a rhino because they all figured out I was a moderate. Maybe they, th- they thought I wasn't really one of them. It's like, no, I'm the way Republicans used to be when we were normal. But I was very uncomfortable with the religious right, as they called them. I think of that as the, the seeds of where we are now with Trump and Trumpism.
1: So now you're originally from Peoria, Illinois,
2: Oh yeah, I know. When I would sit in meetings, and somebody like Frank Luntz, the the famous pollster, would be there saying, "You know, we did this focus group and these polls and the messaging and what pe- regular people want," and he he'd do this whole presentation, and or others like him, and I'd be like, "Well, yeah. I mean, I'm from Peoria. I know. I'm regular people. You don't you don't need to spend all this money on polls and focus groups. Just ask me and my people." <laughs> And I always was a moderate and it was perfectly okay to be a moderate. You know, this was at a time when uh, 80% of Americans were either slightly left of center or slightly right of center. And then I think media liked it for clicks and, you know, talk radio had a lot to do with this, pulling people to, to those fringes, because that's what, if it bleeds, it leads kind of a thing. I would notice some of these evangelical Christian types, they'd be in Congress, but they were rare. And there was one office, I remember, real early on, and I was interviewing for something. And I thought, oh, you know, Republican, kind of a Midwestern, upper Midwest office. And I was asked, well, do you have a problem, you know, staff, the congressman, pray in the office, they kneel and pray. And I'm thinking people can do what they want. It's a little bit weird. I'm like, no, I don't care. And then I realized they meant that I would do it too. start the day on my knees in the congressman's office praying. And I was uncomfortable with that. But you didn't see that all over the place. And I kind of thought, well, okay, you have people representing folks from all around the country. Occasionally you're going to get that. But then something happened uh, starting a number of years after that. In the early to mid-90s, yeah, I guess that's when it was, you started seeing in the beginning more, more of a voice. And because they were a part of the coalition that gave Republicans the majority in the in the mid-90s, they had to be listened to more. And that's that's when I started feeling uncomfortable in the party. Again, I was still a Republican, but there would be certain things that I just wouldn't be involved in. Or if I was asked to go on TV, once I went out as a consultant and I was on TV a lot, if they call and say, Hey, we need somebody to talk about X. And if it just wasn't my bag, I'd say, yeah, yeah, I don't think I'll do that. Or, or I would say, well, I won't come on and be an advocate for that, but I'll be a political analyst. I can give some political analysis, but if you're looking for me to be an activist, you know, that's just not going to happen.
1: In the 80s and 90s, a lot of the time that meant going on like CBS or NBC or, or maybe C-SPAN. You didn't have, at least to the same degree, the the silos where Democrats would talk to each other on MSNBC and conservatives would talk to each other on Fox News. Did that have some role in perpetuating, at least for a time, this moderate Republican ethic that you were describing?
2: When news was actually news and they didn't have to fill the airwaves 24-7 with lots of chatter and conflict, yeah, I mean, that most definitely defined a lot of our, our modern politics. And you see that with Fox. And at some point, Fox changed. I probably been on Fox about 1,500 times.
1: You know, maybe this is sort of the gauzy nostalgia of my political memory, but <laughs> because there weren't that many channels and the channels that did exist had to cover a broader demographic, When politicians appeared on TV, they were pitching to the middle... They weren't pitching to the extremes.
2: Yeah, they were They were talking about uh, legislative positions and their initiatives. You don't actually hear a lot about that anymore uh, in our discourse. It's, it's all the really emotionally charged stuff because, like I said, the, with the media, they think, look, we have Jeff Zucker, head of CNN. And he was uh, good friends with Trump. And they, he greenlit The Apprentice for him when he was head of entertainment at NBC. Uh, he's not a news guy. And because of the success of that that show, and if you believe Trump, har har, he says he helped get him the CNN gig, during the primaries, 2015, 2016, we had 15 or 16 Republicans in the race, in a primary, and it got to the point where the coverage was so skewed for Trump that at a town hall uh, staff meeting with all the CNN staff, and a lot of the the. Producers and anchors and reporters were saying, you know, they were expressing concern that their wall-to-wall coverage of Trump who's getting more coverage than all of the primary candidates combined. They thought that they were creating him as the Republican nominee, and they were concerned that this, uh, their role as journalists and just for the country, and why is CNN doing this? And Jeff Zucker's response was, "Keep the cameras on him till the eyeballs leave." That is not journalism. That is reality show crap. But I would say something sometimes to to producers and bookers uh, when they wanted me to go on and it would be with somebody who really didn't have political experience or policy background. And they wanted us to just talk about something completely stupid and to have a catfight. In fact, the word catfight was used when they were putting me on with with a woman. And the, the entire media was not anymore about news. It had just been dumbed down. And when you start dumbing things down, that's when you get something like the Tea Party and Trump.
1: You sound like somebody who, I don't know if embittered is too strong a word, but you obviously have a lot of very negative views. It sounds like you've seen the inside of The Sausage Factory and were so disgusted by it, and yet you kind of work in this world that must take a toll on you. Have you thought about just getting out?
2: You use the word embittered. I mean, you have to understand that um, my, my country and my capital was just attacked last Wednesday. And it was the president of the United States who orchestrated it. And inside that building was the rest of our government. That is frightening. And I have been sounding the alarms now for five years about Trump and seeing in real time what was happening with the media. So some people were later to the game than me. Those of us who were early resistors or never Trump before we even had a a word for that, we knew.
1: How have you been able to make a living in Washington, given your anti-Trump view?
2: The short answer is you don't. It's been a rough few years. Trump set out to personally destroy me and succeeded in doing so with the help of some of his pals in the media.
1: If you follow me on social media, you'll know that I spend a lot of time thinking carefully about what to eat. And like a lot of people, I've gotten tired of ordering fast food from Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes. Which brings me to Green Chef, the first USDA-certified organic meal kit company. Green Chef is the meal kit service that allows you to enjoy clean ingredients you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness. It's the number one meal kit for eating well. You'll appreciate that Green Chef ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly portioned and mostly prepped so you can spend less time stressing and more time eating. Green Chef makes eating well easy and affordable, including for those with keto, paleo, vegan or vegetarian food preferences. And I'm going to emphasize the keto entry on that list for those who follow a low-carb lifestyle. Green Chef keto recipes average only 14 net carbs each. That's like half a slice of bread or a bunch of mini marshmallows. Here at Colette. We've been fortunate enough to get some Green Chef samplers. Our favorites so far are the beef melt and breaded pork chop meals. But there are plenty of other options. To learn more, go to greenchef.com slash quillette90. That's quillette L E T ninety, and use code quillette 90 to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash 90 and now, back to our podcast. I mean, I realize he's tried to destroy a lot of people, what he does, but could you tell me a little bit about the way you were targeted?
2: It's a long story, and it's complicated, and I'll try and keep it brief. We have time. Okay. <laughs> uh, in I was living in New York after 30 years in Washington, and I sold my house in New York that I, or in DC that I lived in for 22 years, sold a ski condo, sold my car, you know, and I was going to live in New York. That's what I decided I wanted to do. And so I started my consulting business. I was on TV a lot as an unpaid uh, political strategist. And I've been doing that for years, 20, 15 years, thousands of times. And um, so I'm in New York and I get, uh, I had had, Oh, you know, Carly Fiorina's people had reached out to me about maybe being her political director. And I was thinking, well, that's not for me. Cause I really didn't feel like basically camping out in Iowa for a year, which is what a political director would have to do. And you know I'm just one of those people that would be on a list when there's lots of campaigns out there. I'm, I'm somebody you're going to call. And so I had a friend, friend of 30 years in Washington, tell me oh uh, i get a message from him saying hey i'm going to be working on the the trump super pack so i'm going to be in new york a lot we'll have to get together for lunch or drink or something I'm like okay well he's not a good enough friend where he'd feel the need to let me know he's in new york so i thought oh they're going to reach out to me how do i get out of this i had very little awareness of donald trump at that time he was just a reality show buffoon i had really no awareness because i don't pay attention to him that he was the one behind the whole Obama birther movement. I knew it was some crazies, but again, it just, it just wasn't something that was on my radar because it, it was silly and unimportant. And uh, so the next day I get a message from him saying, Hey, we need a good communications director. And basically it needs to be you. I, and I thought, okay, well, you don't just tell your friend of 30 years. No. And I said, well, why don't we sit down and talk about it? So we agreed to have lunch. And um, I was thinking it was just, just to say, Hey, And he brought along Corey Lewandowski, who I'd never met, never heard of, and they admitted that they had to kind of ambush people. They kind of apologized for it because they were having trouble getting good people to meet with them, and they worked on me. And then uh, Corey wanted uh, to know what it would take to get me, how much money, blah blah blah. And so I, I kind of stalled, and I and they wanted to meet with me again, and I stalled for three weeks. And then I thought, "Ah, you know, why not? I'm a consultant. I take hundreds of meetings. So I agreed to a meeting in Trump Tower and saw a whole different Lewandowski. I'd never seen anybody Im- behave like this. And he was exactly the guy that the rest of the world came to see after that. And uh, immediately went down uh, on the sidewalk there on Fifth Avenue. I think I called my mom and said, whoa, you can't believe this guy just got got out of that meeting. And heard from my friend later that day saying, oh, Corey really liked you and loved that you didn't get shook up or whatever the word was. Uh, He thought he was really hard on you, though. I'm like, I said, no, uh, he's an emotional guy in a big job. I was trying to convey to my friend, the guy's an asshole. Can I say that on your?
1: You can say it podcast.
2: (laughs) And then a couple days later, I sent an email to my friend saying, hey, thanks for thinking about me, but really didn't appreciate uh, the hazing. And you have a great time working on the the super PAC. And that was it. And I even was on TV after that, defending Trump on something, thinking he was misunderstood, just like I would have defended any other candidate, you know, Jeb Bush or anybody else at that time. And then when he uh, made the John McCain comments about POW. I like people who aren't captured. I publicly went out against him. And then a couple of months later, there was a piece in the Washington Post about how Trump was not self-funding, that he had a super PAC. And that uh, when he said he was self-funding, he li- and they had him and Corey Lewandowski lying about it, claiming they didn't have one. Well, the Washington Post said, but you went to two of its fundraisers. And he was threatening to sue the Washington Post. So I stepped forward and I did tweets saying, he told me all about the super PAC in meetings with him in May and June. I was sitting there with Corey was openly talking about it to my friend who was going to be working on the super PAC, who, by the way, left before that, before the, even the announcement. But uh, Corey Lewandowski had, in one of the meetings, talked about the super PAC, even asked somebody in front of me if the paperwork had been filed. And he was so open about it that I was thinking, they shouldn't be talking about the super PAC, even though they haven't officially announced. That's just not cool. Well, that was the beginning of the end for me. There's another Washington Post piece where they confronted Corey Lewandowski and he had to admit that, yeah, they had called me for a meeting. And um, then he had to stammer around, claim, oh, well, that was a different super pack we were talking about. We were thinking about having one and then didn't, but they were caught. And I was immediately that day canceled on by Fox. And I have been on Fox a million times. And Bill O'Reilly hopped on Gretchen Carlson's show midday unannounced he never goes on midday to say oh that washington post piece and trump and super pac it's all a lie i'm like oh my god trump picked up the phone here we are in a primary this is still october of 2015 in a primary with 15 16 people and he had the power to pick up the phone and get this done get me banned i would never seen anything like that in my life in all my years in politics in fact you got to be careful if you're going to call up a network and complain about someone they have on you know if you're on a campaign because that, that can be pretty bad and um, I was done. The catfishing of me began that day, which we only later realized, where somebody pretending to be a lawyer with, with privileges in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, representing big Republican donors. They wanted to hire me. They wanted to get rid of Trump. And we later figured out this was just to get as much personal information from me as possible and who I was talking to the night that that I figured it all out. I was warned. We had to get a squad car in front of my home. I was terrified. And that's why I went through that. And that was February of 2016. So I've known for several years what Trump is capable of and his people. And now now the world knows. And so I went through a lot in that period. There were a number of things that were done to me at that time. And then I was on CNN. I don't choose the segments. They were talking about Trump's self-funding. And then I repeated the Washington Post piece from several months before, again, as per published reports that he had a super PAC lied about it, got caught and quickly shut it down. He, that night tweeted out that I begged him for a job that turned down twice and therefore went hostile, which of course was a lie. And I can prove it because I had, which I started putting, I have all the messages from my friend. They, they came to me and even, you know, me saying, uh, thanks, but no, thanks the whole nine yards. I send a cease and desist to Trump because he did it again. And Corey Lewandowski was saying the same thing on Morning Joe, and they wouldn't let me on to defend myself. And I'm getting attacked. And I'm now off TV as a self employed woman and had been on TV for years. It was my main marketing tool. And uh, sometimes could have influence in getting clients on. I couldn't guarantee it, but at least I could get people on the phone and you know and pitch my clients to see if they were worthy guests or if the issue was something that could be covered. That's just how I made my living. And I was off a TV. And so when they got the cease and desist, now Don McGann was the uh, chief counsel on the campaign. He called my lawyer. Wanted to see what we could do to dial this back. My lawyer said, we're not asking for money, but we want an apology and we want those, those tweets taken down. Well, I wasn't going to get an apology, but they were going to take them down if, you know, Trump would delete his defamatory tweets about me if I signed an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, where I could never talk about my meetings and uh, that would be it. I was actually going to do it. But I figured out the catfishing then and I decided that I will not enter into any legal agreement with Donald Trump or he has any say over what I can and cannot do or say or write. And Domagan then called the friend of mine and said, because uh, I had contacted that original guy who contacted me and said, You know, you still have all those communication for me where where you invited me and he talked to reporters, you know, uh, he had an NDA and couldn't do it publicly, but he said, no, we came to her. She did not, you know, she did not take the job. She told us no thanks. He confirmed all of that. And this was, you know, in articles, but that didn't matter when you've got the power of the Trump tweet. So I proceeded to file a lawsuit and, uh, um, and it's my understanding. And there was an article about this that when they found out Manafort was there then. And he made Trump, he held him back as Trump wanted to fire off a statement. And Manafort wanted him to just ignore it, that if we don't talk about her, it, it you know it doesn't matter. There was also an article coming out in Politico about the catfishing, because by this time it was being investigated. When Politico was calling around Trump team, we'd been working on this article for about four and a half months, and only a few people knew about it. Before publication, but at, during that day and a half when they were calling Team Trump to ask them you know, to get 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 comment from them, saying, "What do you have to say for yourselves on this catfishing? It's clear as you guys. We had it, you know, all tracked. We had IP addresses and everything. I, you know, we it was clear what it was." And um, my email was hacked at that point. Everything deleted meant meaning evidence. So now the FBI says now we have a federal crime, and they launched an investigation. And I don't even want to go into everything that happened in the months after that. But it was scary, including some people who became notorious after that, and they were calling around to a lot of places anytime that I would get a gig, they'd have it undone. And then eventually the FBI, Southern District of New York, told me that this had gone beyond their initial purview of computer intrusion, and now they had to send some of this stuff to special counsel Robert Mueller. And that at that point, if anybody needed to speak to me, it would come from Mueller's team.
1: So I think I probably know the answer to this. How do you feel about Twitter banning Trump's account?
2: Well, I think they should have done it long ago or done temporary suspensions so that he knew he couldn't do certain things. There should be a way on social media for somebody with the reach that he has. If he attacks you and says something about you, you should have equal access to that audience to defend yourself. I never did. And I was ruined as a result and traumatized and attacked and placed in danger and all kinds of things
1: this episode of the quillette podcast is brought to you by skillshare the online learning community that offers you the chance to learn new skills in a more structured and supportive way than you can get from just watching how to videos on youtube none of us really know what 2021 will bring but if you want to make the most of it whatever it brings consider joining up at skillshare to develop your talent learn new skills and make yourself more marketable If you surf the Skillshare site, you'll find that a lot of the most popular topics involve exploring your creative side, such as graphic design, logos and branding, photography, illustration, and creative writing. But you'll also find a lot of stuff that's more off the beaten path. For instance, I've spent a lot of time on Skillshare trying to get better at chess, and I love the fact that all of the material is action-oriented. There's always a project or a goal, and you're part of a larger group of other Skillshare members supporting you as you learn the material. Explore your creative side at Skillshare.com slash Quillette. That's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. Skillshare.com slash Quillette and get a free trial of Skillshare's premium membership. Thank you to Skillshare for supporting our podcast. And now back to our show. Now you say things were ruined. Does that mean your whole livelihood dried up as a result of this?
2: Yes, and reputation and everything and then some people, even if they're with you on it, they all kind of got afraid. It's sort of like if if somebody's beating you up in the street and she's calling for help, people want you know they, they don't want to get involved. So I lost a lot of friends that way. And there are some people I don't want them in my life. Also the media, the media who banned me, and they know that they know that they were wrong, but they sweep it under the rug because they figure, well, she's a nobody. And if we try and make it right, then we're shining a light on what we did. So the damage is permanent.
1: Did some people who were your friends basically have to choose whether to remain in the Trump cult or be your friend, and they basically chose the Trump cult? Is, is that how it worked?
2: Well, my friends in politics, this was the ones. this is what hurt uh, hard, but it wasn't surprising. These were Republican friends that worked in Republican politics or media at various levels. And during the primary, the establishment, I would call them mostly establishment, they were not for Trump. The Washington establishment was not for Trump. When he got the nomination, they all fell in line because they needed to keep their their place as a cog in the wheel. Their lobbying gigs, their TV gigs, their column, you know, their contracts. Their, their, their Even if it's just, you know, they still wanted to go to their monthly meetings at the Loudoun County, Virginia, Country Club Ladies Republican lunches. You know, whatever it is. That
1: sounds amazing. How do I get an invite?
2: Yeah, I know. Uh, and uh, and and so they didn't want to give that up. So all of the things that they knew about Trump and they knew, and some of them had a front row seat to what was happening to me and were very supportive. When he became the nominee, they fell in line. And if not completely then, certainly when he won knowing what, and they knew everything that I knew. So that's what's, that's when I was horrified. I left the party, by the way, when they nominated Trump done a lot of the, a lot of folks uh, who would never Trump, they waited a long time. I, I knew then, uh, and I knew that I could never uh, be a part of that and because I, now I knew that the people were crooked, the people who would be running the party and the apparatus around it and, and everything associated with it. They were going to be around. And I just didn't see how I could ever sit around a conference table and do communication strategy or act like bygones or bygones. I knew what Trump was and I knew that they knew it. These were not part of the the people out in the hinterlands with their red MAGA hats. These are people who know better. And they accepted it because otherwise they would have to give things up. So they all got in line. And Trump knew that would happen. And Roger Stone, who was his advisor, knew that would happen. And Paul Manafort knew that would happen. There are a lot of people who I don't trust because they got out too late. And my feeling is they're either dishonest and they're putting their finger in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. They get out when their opportunities in Trump world are exhausted. And so they pivot for their own personal reasons. So if you're to believe them, well, they just didn't know and they finally saw the light. It's like, okay, you're either too stupid then to be somebody that we should be listening to on television uh, or you're dishonest.
1: It feels like what you're telling me is that a lot of these people, ideology is secondary. For them, it's about being close to power. You must have had the experience of seeing people who you knew they hated Trump, or at least were suspicious of his agenda, but you'd turn on the TV and you'd see them acting as mouthpieces.
2: You bet, and members of Congress are the same. They will privately tell folks that they can't stand Trump, that they're afraid of him, they just want him to be gone so they can get past this era. But then they publicly support him because they were afraid of a mean tweet. So by taking away Twitter, It's ironic that you have the president of the United States claiming his freedom of speech is is being cut off. He has a press room right there in the White House with a room full of cameras and a room full of reporters whose only job it is to take down his every word and amplify it and giving him as much free speech as he can handle but he doesn't want to communicate that way because then we'd all see and hear everything. You've got these talk radio show hosts with millions, just bazillions of listeners in their audience who are claiming, oh, if we get cut off Twitter or Parler, then that's our free speech is being affected. It's like you have millions of of listeners.
1: Have you linked up with other people whose lives have been ruined by this kind of thing where like there must be a whole subculture of Politicos and ex-politicos who maybe were part of the Republican orbit and then got cast out—are these people looking to come back into politics under the hope that maybe things are going to become more normal now?
2: Well, some people are ruined forever. Women got it harder <laughs> than the men.
1: Why did women get it harder?
2: I uh, because there's a double standard for women, particularly in media, and so the men can get away with more. So we're you know we're kind of the women have to fight with one hand tied behind our backs. And it's already tougher for us. I'm a little bit older, so it's kind of too late for me. But, you know, for the younger set, hopefully they won't have to go through even a fraction of what I and some of my women friends and colleagues, former colleagues, have, have gone through.
1: Might it be the case that the Republicans, it's kind of like after a big bender and they say, what the hell happened? <laughs> History moves in forces and counter forces. Will it become the Bob Dole Republican Party?
2: I suppose it's possible, but it's a long way off. Uh, Look, uh, we saw um, shortly before we hopped on here, all these corporations now that are cutting off political funding to all things Republican, and in some cases, just political funding at all. They want donations back. You've got people calling for, including home state editorial boards, calling for Ted Cruz to resign and Josh Hawley to resign because they are leading this effort. Look, Ted Cruz wanted to inherit Everything that Donald Trump has, he wants to be. They'll let you say if you get rid of the the head guy, maybe it goes away. Ted Cruz wants to be that guy, uh, and so the part of this fight is making it clear that he ain't going to be the guy. There's not going to be any guy. It will take a long time for the Republican <clears throat> Party to come back, but if they want to have something even remotely that resembles what they had before. It's going to take true patriots, which means people that have to stand up to this, they're afraid of being primaried, but they've got a long fight ahead of them. But that's what they're going to have to do. Get rid of the money, get rid of the lies.
1: We've been speaking with Cherry Jacobus. Did I get that right? Or is it Sherry?
2: It's Sherry. (laughs) It's close enough. (laughs) Sherry, I was kind of the last name. You got the last name right. So congratulations. Most people don't.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Well, you don't just get this gig for being pretty. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much for being on the Quillette
0: podcast. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.